The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. Welcome to today's podcast, March 29th, 2022. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Peppy. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right. In today's episode, we are going to do our very first Mem Eries, where we look back at some historic moments in WVU's history. And today, we are going to discuss the 2005 NCAA tournament between the seventh seed West Virginia Mountaineers and the second seed wake forest demon deacons but before we get into all that we just want to remind all of you if you haven't already please follow us on social media you can do it on facebook instagram tiktok or twitter whatever you like going on just look for the voice of motown podcast and just as a reminder that is a different account than brad's voice of motown account so make sure you search across all of those platforms for both the voice of motown podcast and the voice of motown Give us a call, uh, give us a follow, give us a like. And if you're feeling generous, you can always send us a donation directly to the Voice of Motown account through the link in our bio, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Absolutely. And look for Brandon's articles on the Voice of Motown's website and social media accounts. Lastly, uh, we just encourage fan interaction. So if you guys are feeling like talking about WVU sports, reach out to us. If you have some opinions about today's episode, reach out. Let us know what you liked about it. Let us know how we can improve. We definitely want to hear your opinions. And just wanted to throw something into that. Um, you know, during this offseason, since the basketball season is over, the football season is over too, we're going to continue making weekly podcasts providing you with updates on any significant news that pops out. But in, during the doubt time, you can expect more segments like this. So um, that interaction is very important to us. So we can make sure that we tailor it to something that you would like to hear. So as you listen to this, think about another memory that you would like for us to cover. Yeah, 100%. If you guys have any ideas, um, just shoot them our way and maybe we will do it on the next podcast. So let's set the stage for this historic matchup. This was a West Virginia team that had some all-time greats on it, guys like Kevin Pitsnoggle and Mike Ganzi, but it also had some huge role players um, who were key for Mountaineer teams for several years, maybe some guys you might have forgot about. They had J.D. Collins, Pat Beeline, Tyrone Sally, um, Johannes Herbert, Dior Fisher, Frank Young, and Darius Nichols, who WVU just um, played against his team he was coaching this past season. Um, so let's set the stage. The Mountaineers had to perform well in the Big East tournament just to make it to the big dance in the NCAA tournament. And they did just that by making it to the Big East championship. Unfortunately, they lost to Syracuse, but their performance earned them a seventh seed in the tournament. And this was John Beeline's third season at West Virginia and just his first season of leading the Mountaineers to the big tournament. Um, however, getting to the second round to take on Wake Forest was not as easy as some fans might remember. They squeaked out a two-point victory over Creighton, 
with Sally's slam dunk with just seconds remaining in the game. So what are your thoughts on everything that led up to the Wake Forest game? Yeah, it was a really interesting season. Um, WVU started off kind of gangbusters in the non-conference schedule, um, really tearing it up through there. Um, and then starting off on Big East play, they uh, lost five straight um, to start Big East play, including six of their first seven games. Um, but then uh, to finish off the season, like you noted, in the Big East tournament, uh, they won eight of their last 10 games, which really helped propel them into the, the rankings. They even beat, I believe it was the top seeded team in the Big East tournament, Boston College, which was the first time that they beat them all season. They had two previous losses against them during the regular season. And this was a different WVU team. This wasn't the Bob Huggins grit and grind um, you out sort of style. This is a team who emphasized three-point shooting and ball movement. Um, in fact, they were fourth in the country in three-point attempts and 20th in assists per game in the NCAA. Um, and it was just interesting to, to watch that team because it was completely different and it was fun and it was innovative even for NCAA basketball at the time because not a lot of teams were focusing that much on three-point shooting. Um, and then the final thing that I wanted to cover too is going into this game before this is that John Beeland actually had laryngitis during this game. Um, there's a couple moments in there where you can hear the commentators talk about how they see John Beeland yelling, but they don't know if he's saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I noticed that too, watching some of the highlights, um, in the full game is on YouTube. If anyone's interested in going back to watch, um, it, it's, it's fun. Even the second time around watching the game, um, but all of this led to Wake Forest, a team that many considered to be a number one seed, even though they only got the number two seed in the tournament. And uh, this team was just loaded. They had stars such as future NBA All-Star Chris Paul, AP Honorable Mention Eric Williams, and Justin Gray, who was a first or second team All-ACC all member for three straight years while he was in college. Um, so this team was just absolutely loaded. Plus, those guys didn't even lead Wake Forest in scoring that game. And it ended up, it ended up being um, Downey who led Wake Forest. So um, they just had great players all up and down their lineup. And they won 27 games that year and were ranked pretty much all throughout the basketball year. So what do you think about Wake Forest? Yeah, I mean, any team with Chris Paul has tended to do pretty well. And Chris Paul was an extremely high-level recruit coming out of high school. Um, going into college, you know, that freshman year, he did pretty well. And then this year was kind of – it seemed like it was definitely going to be his last year because the NBA was calling. Um, he had a great game, but he was also one of the reasons why they fell to that second seed after being suspended from one game in the ACC tournament after a gr groin punch to Julius Hodges. Um, a lot of fans on their message boards kind of said, you know, we didn't want to play WVU because their style of play. Um, that was the one match we hoped to avoid. And that one little punch that got him suspended that potentially lost them one seed line due to the loss in the ACC tournament um, got them right in that right situation to come into this game. Yeah, and the game was an exciting double overtime victory. The final score ended up being 111 to 105. Um, but that doesn't really tell the whole story. West Virginia was down by 13 at halftime. 
and fought their way back for much of the second half just to send it to overtime. It was definitely back and forth most of the game. Um, so what stats or moments stick out to you? Yeah, so um, re-watching the whole game, um, you know, kind of the first things that stuck out to me with WVU was the off-ball movement. Lots of off-ball screens, lots of guys cutting, moving, trying to get open. Um, it was a completely different offense from what we see now. And this, you know, isn't the bash Bob Huggins system at all because it works for him. But, you know, the, the off-ball movement was huge. Um, also, the usage of zone defense. WVU then was almost exclusively a zone defense team. Lots of 2-3, 1-3-1, switching, moving around that way. Um, and, you know, in some ways it did hurt that team. Um, you know, the rebounding advantage in that game did not go WVU's way. I think they were out rebound by 13. Um, and another thing, not necessarily related to WVU that I thought was interesting was the, the bracket selection. I mean, um, Wake Forest being a two seed, the game's being played in Cleveland, Ohio in the Albuquerque bracket, which, you know, doesn't really make much sense to me. Um, and then also, you know, as a two seed, for those more regional games, usually the two C gets a game that's closer to them. Um, this game actually played in the WVU's favor because it was basically in WVU's backyard in Cleveland. Um, and the crowd was very much, it seemed W in WVU's favor, really reacting to the WVU moments. Um, lots of oohs and ahs when something good and bad happens. So um, it was really fun to listen to see how diehard um the Mountaineer fans were who traveled that three hour trip up to Cleveland um, and cheered on the Mountaineers. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, I was going to say you're right. I mean, um, John Beeline team and Bob Huggins teams are, are complete opposite. I mean, Beeline teams really emphasize turnovers and high scoring where, you know, Bob Huggins team wants to kind of slow it down a little bit and uh, keep it low scoring. So these beeline teams, they were always fun, always exciting. Obviously they could be frustrating at times, giving up a lot of points, giving up a lot of rebounds, but it always felt like these beeline teams were in a game because they could just score in bunches at any given time. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, kind of getting into the game, the the first half was very much similar to the way that, you know, some of the games went this season. Um, WV only scored 27 points in the first half. They had no free throws, only made one three in the first half. And even at one point, John Beeline, with that laryngitis, uh, got a technical um, with about a minute 34 left. Um, and he, or 1034 left after a foul call on Dior Fisher. Um, and it was just crazy to watch because WV was just getting beat up on the inside. Um, who, what was it? Uh, Wake Forest scored, I believe it was 28 of their 40 points inside the paint that game or in that first half, uh, which was just absolutely crazy to me. But, you know, the second half was really, kind of the turning point because you know WVU came out to a nice little lead to come out they Dior Fisher seemed to be kind of the spark plug that came in and changed things um Pitt Snoggle really didn't play that much and you know we always think of Pitt Snoggle as kind of this matchup nightmare but they did a really good job of limiting WVU in three-point shooting um WVU actually shot a lower percentage from three-point than Wake Forest did for the game but Dior Fisher was really dominant that game even though he ended up fouling out, finishing with 
15 points, three blocks, and 10 rebounds in pretty much, you know, playing most of the second half with four fouls. Um, so he was really kind of the big difference maker in that game for me. What did you think of Dior Fisher's performance? Yeah, he's a guy who doesn't get mentioned enough um, for that game because, honestly, I forgot how important he was as well until I started rewatching and and doing some research on it. But, yeah, um, Kevin Pitsnoggle just couldn't slow down Eric Williams. Um, He was just getting overpowered, and Williams was just um, too quick inside, honestly. And so Dior Fisher had to come off the bench, and that's really what changed the momentum of the game, I thought. Uh, you mentioned his 10 points, or sorry, 15 points, but um, his, his 10 rebounds and three blocks is really what I thought changed everything for the Mountaineers. Without him, WVU probably doesn't mount that comeback in the second half, and we're not sitting here talking about the game. Oh, for sure. I mean, and the one thing that was really surprising to me that I kind of forgot was that mid-range game that he had. He was really, you know, consistent on making those shots. He made a lot of uh, free throw. He made a couple free throws as well, which I didn't realize he was an 85% free throw shooter on the season, which is just insane to me. Um, he was three from three from the line, six of eight from the field goal. Um, he actually had one assist too, and it was a really pretty one too that led to Tyrone Sally's dunk. Um, I believe it was to uh, with about a minute left to um, take the lead, I believe. Um, really pretty ball and Tyrone Sally, you know, kind of the, the unsung hero of this team. I know he led the team in scoring during the season, but he was really kind of playing hero ball down the stretch. Um, I noted that, you know, he had a driving and one with two twenty three left to cut the lead, the one, and then that dunk on the beautiful pass from Dior Fisher. And it wasn't, uh, you know, Dior Fisher from the high post or anything like that. He was out past the perimeter, making a really long, pretty bounce pass to Tyrone Cali, the Sally cutting to the basket to make that uh, dunk off of it. And really kind of seemed like that kind of shifted the momentum and gave WVU a shot to win it there late. Yeah, 100%. And uh, Tyrone Sally had a near perfect game. Um, And once again, just a guy who's a little forgotten about with this game and really that season, because you hear the name Gansey and Pitsnoggle a lot. Tyrone Sally was a stud really most of the year and in that game he was perfect from the line and then he went seven for eight from the field his 21 points were second on the team and honestly he could have scored more but he ended up fouling out at one point so um once again same with Dior Fisher if Tyrone Sally doesn't have that type of game we're probably not talking about a WVU victory and remembering this game yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, this is a game, too, that I felt like it took um, half of a or one and a half halves for it to really kind of start because it wasn't until really around the 10 minute mark that things started kind of getting competitive. And that really carried over into that first overtime where um, Tyrone Sally ended up fouling out with 31 and a half seconds left in that first overtime. Um, but Mike Gansey, who had a real, fairly quiet game. Um, coming into the overtime kind of just went nuclear there in overtime where he was basically carrying the team. He had 10 points in that first overtime. And, you know, honestly, one of the biggest plays of the game wasn't actually a WVU play in that first overtime. It was a play where um, Hair Bear had a wide, what looked to be a wide open layup with time basically expiring. And Eric Williams came over 
from about the free throw line and blocked it um, to end the first overtime, sending us over into um, that second overtime. So what do you think of Mike Gansey during the, those overtime periods? Yeah, I mean, that's the game that always sticks out um, for this game, not only for WVU fans, but even Wake Forest fans remember his name well. He was the hometown kid because he grew up around Cleveland. And um, yeah, he just had the game of his life. He had a game high, 29 points, 19 of which, like you said, came in the overtimes. And he also had seven rebounds um, and just couldn't miss from the field in the line. He shot very high. It wasn't like he shot under 50. 500 out there um he was shooting very well all over the place and yeah he was just on fire um but yeah Mike Gansey just a WVU legend obviously he had a good career but after that Wake Forest game um a lot of people remember him I was even reading um if you if fans don't know he now works for the Cleveland Cavaliers and just recently he was down in uh I believe it was North Carolina scouting players and he was at the wake force facility wanting to get in to watch a player and the guard asked him what his name was and when he told him mike gansey he goes oh i hated you for years so (laughs) like i said even wake force fans will always remember that name just for how well he did that game yeah i mean he was incredible and then even going into that second overtime it seemed like wu is going to be in a tough for and for a tough situation dior fisher fouled out with four minutes left in that second overtime. You already had Tyrone Sally foul out. Um, J.D. Collins, who had, I believe, 12 points on the game, fouled out as well. But Gansey just continued to carry the team through that overtime. Um, and, you know, I don't know if it was fueled by this at all, but, you know, maybe he was kind of driven by the fact that he could have put the game away at the end of that second half because um, he had two free throws there with WVU up two. He missed the second one, which would have put WVU up four. And then Wake Forest goes down, hits the game-tying three, and WVU can't score before the shot clock ends um, to send us into that first overtime. And he really made up for it, though, with those, you know, however many points he had in the second half. Um, I know it was at least 15. I know he had 10 in the first overtime. He had five. The first five points in the second overtime and several free throws to close out the game. Um, it's hard to find good statistics on the the box scores and the play by play. So um, I know he finished with 29. Um, I would say at least 17 of those, maybe even 20 of those came in the overtimes, which was just absolutely crazy. Yeah. But 19 of them. 19. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of what I saw as kind of the, the game ending play, I know the game continued on for a few minutes afterwards, but it was Chris Paul fouling out. I mean, he was kind of the heart and soul of that team. And it happened really quickly. He played a lot of the second half with three fouls. And then uh, Pitt Snoggle took a charge. And then on the very next play, Gansey drove to the hoop for a layup. And Chris Paul fouled him there. And he was out with 324 left. And it was really from there on out, Downey, who shot, I think, 13 three-point attempts that game, made six of them. Um, and he was just kind of jacking him up there at the end um, and keeping Wake Forest in the game. But once Chris Paul was out, it seemed like, game over yeah that's really what changed it i mean who knows if he would have stayed in we might have went into three overtimes because um it seemed like that is when the the whole momentum changed is when he got those two quick fouls 
Um, and Mike Ganzi in interviews was also talking about how he just had family members, friends from middle and high school there watching them. And so that maybe contributed to the the uh, slow start. Uh, I'm sure that brought up a lot of nerves seeing kids he probably hasn't seen in years since he's been away in college. Um, but yeah, he 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 made it count when uh, the game was on the line. Yeah, definitely. And ultimately, you know, W ended up winning 111, 105, like we said. Um, it was really interesting, too, because WVU scored 50 points in the second half alone um, to co- compared to Wake Forest 37. And impressively enough, too, WVU had five guys scoring double figures, including two guys in 20. That was Mike Ganzi and Tyrone Sally. Um, Dior Fisher had 15. Johannes Herbert had 13. And J.D. Collins had 12 which was actually his career high going into that game. Um, And then, uh, obviously, we talked about Eric Williams a bit, who had 23 points, 12 rebounds, two blocks. Um, But Chris Paul, 22 points, nine assists, six rebounds, two steals. And then Downey was another player on their team with 20-plus points who finished with 27 points, including six of 13 from three-point range. Uh, five assists and four rebounds. Um, Wake Forest was a really tough team, like we talked about, um, and this game was an all-time great. Um, and WVU's resilience to be able to come back in that second half, come back after kind of blowing that four-point lead or three-point lead in the second or second half with little time left, and then battling back through all that fatigue in those two overtime games and coming to a win. Um, to take WVU to its first Sweet 16 since 1998 was huge. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And uh, some some of my favorite moments that really stuck out for me that game, um, I actually have three. The very first one is early in the second half when Dior Fisher blocked Eric Williams. Um, WVU was still losing at that point, but I think that play is really what gave the West Virginia bench and players hope because prior to that they couldn't stop Chris Paul or Williams I mean that was really the issue was Chris Paul was getting inside the zone and then just feeding Williams easy buckets and you know after that block you could just see the players on the bench everyone on the court it was the first time West Virginia really put up any resistance inside and so I think that was a big turning point um, my second one, you you mentioned it earlier. It was Tyrone Sally's backdoor dunk with about a minute left in the second half. And that gave West Virginia its first lead since very early in the game. Um, it was just a perfectly executed play where Fisher sees Sally cutting backdoor and delivers a perfect bounce pass. Um, and Sally just finishes with a big dunk. So the significance of taking the lead after being down essentially the whole game um, and the amount of time left, just uh, everything about that was great and very memorable. And then my last one um, was Mike Ganzi. He hit a three-pointer with about three minutes left in double overtime. And that gave WVU a four-point lead. And then right after that is when Chris Paul fouls out. Um, and that was really it. It was just making free throws and making sure you don't blow it. And it was game over. So, um yeah, those were the three moments that really just stuck out to me watching the game. Yeah, definitely. I had a Dior Fisher's spark just basically during that whole second half where he came in. He had three fouls, 
Um, he got a fourth one and then he came back in and played a lot of t- minutes with that fourth foul, but he was really kind of the game changer when he was out there because Pitsnoggle couldn't guard the post and Fisher's defense down there, his rebounding was just game changing. Um, another moment that I had was, uh, a Joe Hairbear three, um, which cut the lead down to five. It seemed like WVU had some momentum going in and then Wake Forest started getting moving. Um, they hit a three to put the push to lead, lead out to eight. But Joe Herbert answered with that three to put them back in within five. Um, and shortly after, WV would take the lead. And it was a really nice play because Pitsnoggle had the ball in the post. And he made a nice little nifty bounce pass out to Herbert, who was wide open from three. And he made that. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was a nice little play and kind of showed how committed WV was to ball movement. Um, I also had the Tyrone Sally dunk. And another one that I had was it wasn't really a... a consequential play but i think it was just a good effort play um daris nichols coming in um after jd collins was dealing with some foul trouble in the second overtime um came in drove showed some aggressiveness tried to make a layup he missed he ended up getting his own offensive rebound kicked the ball back out reset it out um kept moving got to the perimeter and made a three-pointer with 318 left uh to put wvu up four um, I think it just go, went to show the type of leadership abilities and the effort that Darius Nichols would show throughout the rest of his career, a great WVU career. And it was awesome seeing him out there as a freshman filling in when he didn't really play that often during the regular season. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, people will remember the name Darius Nichols, but it's important to note he was a freshman and that was a big moment uh, that uh, he, he got put in and, and he didn't let us down. Also, shout out to Joe Herbert. I mean, that that's a name that doesn't get brought up a lot. But when he played, he was just he wasn't exactly someone who was going to give you like 20 points a night, but he could do it all. He was he was just a well-rounded player who could take the ball up court, which he did a lot that game because Chris Paul was harassing our point guards. And so they they left it up to him. And, you know, he could get rebounds, he could pass, he could score. Um, so just shout out to him who doesn't get brought up a lot, but he was a solid player for WVU. Oh, for sure. I mean, definitely one of the fan favorites just because he was a hard worker with a good shot, kind of like you said, did a little bit of everything. And he had good size for a guard. I believe he was six five. So um, in the lineup where you had J.D. Collins, who was under six foot, you had Mike Ganzi, who I think was like six four. Um, you know, having that height in your backcourt was really important. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure a lot of fans are thinking, well, what happened? Uh, this was so long ago. You might not remember how the rest of the season played out. So after the Wake Forest game, West Virginia went on to defeat six seed Texas Tech in the Sweet 16. Um, Tech was led by Hall of Fame coach Bobby Knight that year, if, you, if fans don't remember. And they won 65 to 60. So it looked like no one could slow down the Mountaineers at that point. And they go on to the Elite Eight to take on fourth seed Louisville and held a 20-point lead at one point. The Mountaineers were making threes all over the court in the first half, making weird angle shots, shots from the logo near half court. And then, um, like we talked about earlier, this is what could be frustrating with those B-line teams sometimes, is West Virginia went really cold. And they couldn't slow Louisville down in the second half. So um, Louisville climbed back, forced an overtime, and they eventually got the win, 93 to 85. And WVU gets bounced out of the tournament after that Louisville game. Yeah, I mean it was a that was a diff- hard loss, but 
you know, looking back at it, I think, you know, that run was really admirable from the team just because of, um, you know, where they started two years ago, they, the past two seasons, they hadn't really done much. Um, and Beeline really put together a, a group of guys who were really good. I mean, you think of Dior Fisher, who was a transfer. Um, you had Mike Ganzi, who was a transfer. He played at St. Bonaventure before coming here. Um, and then, you know, the other guys who were, you know, coming in with Kevin Pitsnoggle, who was a West Virginia kid, a tall one who could shoot a really atypical center in that day and age. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was great watching that run. Um, making the Elite Eight felt huge, um, even though we were so close to the Final Four. Still, as WVU fans, I felt like it drew a lot more interest to the program. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, and just talking about how it shaped the program all the way up until present day, um, West Virgi- this was West Virginia's first tournament appearance since the 1997-98 season. Um, and as we all know, WVU went on to make the tournament in seven of the next eight seasons after that. So um, in the one year they didn't make the tournament, they won the NIT. So really a long stretch of success after this year. And without question, the 2004-05 season changed the course of WVU basketball. Um, so the impact of that season just cannot be emphasized enough. And, you know, they were just a really fun team to watch. Also, not only did they change everything, but, um, you know, you just never really had a boring game with that style of play. Yeah, definitely. And that was the start of um, a run where WVU made three consecutive Sweet 16s or better, um, which was just incredible. It was the deepest tournament run that WVU had ever been on since 1959, making the Elite Eight, uh, which, again, just just incredible. And, you know, outside of WVU, the impact of Beeline's coaching and his style really, I think, was ahead of the game. I mean, you look at the way the NBA is played now and even some college basketball teams where there's such a focus on ball movement, off-ball screens, three-point shooting. Um, he really kind of changed the game. And, you know, some of these players were kind of ahead of the game. I mean, you look at Kevin Pitsnoggle. Um, he played in an era where big men were supposed to be in the post and he was playing out on the perimeter from three. You know, if he was playing nowadays, maybe he's looked at more seriously as an NBA player because of that shooting ability, because teams would have the ability to sprinkle that in somewhere. Um, and WVU hat was filled with really good shooters. I mean, Tyron Sally was a pretty solid shooter. Joe Herbert was a good shooter. Pat Beeline was a really good shooter. Uh, Gansey was a great shooter. So going down the list, you had guys who um, played a style of basketball that was way ahead of the game at the time, which I think is really interesting to think about um, based on, you know, how ahead of the curve WVU was. And obviously that led to uh, Coach John Beeline leaving a few seasons later to go to Michigan, which then ended up after a couple national titles, got him a job in the NBA for a season with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to argue what a good coach he is. Took Michigan to two title games um, and came up just short of winning one. But I mean, that's, yeah, that's nothing to be ashamed of. He, he took a lot of uh, Michigan teams deep in the tournament, which who can complain about that? It didn't work out for him in the NBA as a head coach, but um, you know he was in a weird situation where that Cleveland team wasn't very good, and I don't think any coach was really going to win a lot of games there. 
And now I believe he's working for the Pistons in some type of office role. So um, who knows? Maybe he comes back to college one day. I'm not saying he's going to come back to West Virginia. Like I've seen some people on social media suggest. I don't think that's ever in the cards. Um, Not that I would ever turn it away after hugs leaves, but I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but I wouldn't be shocked if he does come back to college and, and, you know, takes over another big program and, and has success because he's, he's just got a really good basketball mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of a a few things I want to highlight too, was some low lights that I, I found during the game and they're not all necessarily, um, related to the game, but, um, you know, the top first one I thought of was Chris Paul's kind of foul drawing, flopping, whatever you want to call it. It seemed like he was really good at initiating contact, getting calls, um, getting the refs to initiate a call. And a lot of the times it felt like it was just regular basketball. Um, so he was selling it, which you can consider flopping. So um, Chris Paul still kind of does that in today's game. So it, it was interesting to see how early he was still doing it. Um, the second one I have was uh, Coach Prosser putting the wrong guy out to shoot the technical free throws after John Beeline's technical. Um, so on the play, um, one of their forwards got fouled, and uh, that's what cued um, John Beeline to start complaining because he didn't think it was a foul. Um, he thought it was a clean block by Dior Fisher. So the coach sent the guy who got fouled out to shoot the technical free throws, who's a big guy, not very good free throw shooter, and uh, he missed a free throw. Um, you could see Prosser complaining afterwards saying, you know, what's going on? Why was he out there? I didn't, you know, get to choose um, while that guy goes back out there to shoot the next two free throws. Um, and it was just a funny moment to see, you know, a mistake like that being made, which potentially could have made a difference in the long run. I mean, you put a high percentage three point shooter out there, like or a free throw shooter out there, like Chris Paul, you know, maybe those two points make a difference. Um and then, not really related to the game, but uh, there was an ad that kept on popping up during the game of the replay that I watched for um, Spring Break Shark Attack TV movie. And um, it's been a while since I've seen a made-for-TV movie. It just kind of harkens back to that early 2000s era. And, you know, that seems like something that would be on um, sci-fi nowadays, not uh, CBS. So just thought that was that was funny. Um Another low light I had to highlight was Wake Forest regulation three point shooting. Um, they were shooting around twenty percent in that for, in that the, the regulation, and then for whatever reason, in overtime they caught fire, which was absolutely frustrating because it seemed like every time they needed a three, they made one, and WVU was back to having to get that lead back. Yeah, it, it sounds like you saw the OG Sharknado on this commercial. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah, some cool facts uh, that we jotted down about the game. Um, this was Chris Paul's last collegiate game. He went pro after this. It was only a sophomore year, but he went pro. Um, and LeBron James was in attendance, which I don't remember that at all. I think he was only um, like in his second year in the NBA at that point. And him and Chris Paul were already um, kind of friends. And so he went there to watch Chris Paul. And if you look at some articles, they even have quotes from LeBron James um, talking about it years later. So it was even a memorable game for him. Because <laughs> it was just so high scoring and back and forth. Um, another cool thing that I, 
I didn't realize the connection, but John Beeline and Skip Prosser, the two head coaches, have really close ties to Wheeling, West Virginia, which isn't too far from me and Brandon. Um, John Beeline went to school at, it's now called Wheeling University. Some people might remember it as Wheeling Jesuit. And um, Skip Prosser coached at Lindsley and Wheeling Central Catholic down in Wheeling. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's stuff that I've kind of heard about here and there, but I didn't realize they both had really close ties to the Wheeling a- area, which is pretty neat. Um, and kind of on a sad note, Skip Prosser sadly died just two years after, roughly two years after that game from a massive heart attack. He was still the head coach at Wake Forest and just suddenly passed, which um, I didn't realize. I, I didn't know that until I started doing some digging, but um yeah, those were just some of the interesting facts that I found about the game. Yeah, those are really interesting, especially um, Coach Prosser's ties to the West Virginia area. I know they mentioned during the broadcast that he actually got his graduate degree in coaching from West Virginia University. So definitely familiar with the school. Um, and I didn't know that about Beeline. I didn't know he went to Wheeling Jesuit. I don't you know, know why. It seems like something that I should know, but I definitely didn't know that before this. Um Look, I had a couple fun facts too. Um, not really super relevant, but they showed Mike Gansey's parents in the crowd and they had them listed as Tony and Gail Mazella, um, which I thought was interesting with Mike Gansey's name being Mike Gansey. So I just thought that was a weird thing to, to, to see. Um, this was WVU's only double overtime game in postseason play ever. And this was also the highest scoring WVU postseason game of all time, um, which was crazy. I mean, it makes sense since it was a, since it was a double overtime game, but still um, just shows to, goes to show how memorable and how significant the game was in the history of WVU's basketball program, which is long and storied. I mean, you think of the teams with Hot Rod Hunley and Jerry West and crew, um, you know, so definitely one that's going to go up, up there in the history books for a very, very long time. Yeah, 100%. And uh, that's all I got. I mean, it was fun to reminisce. I I enjoyed going back and watching the game because it's been so long. Um, And yeah, it was just a great game. I don't know if we'll ever see another one like that. uh, Just because the double overtime, the high scoring, it was just so unique. And like we said earlier, just very significant in the Mountaineers basketball program history. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's strange rewatching games from that long ago too, because, you know, we're used to watching everything in HD, um, you know, rewatching the game on YouTube, everything's kind of grainy. You're trying to figure out who's who at times. And, um, you know, it kind of makes you nostalgic too, for like, you know, whenever you were a kid watching TV and watching sports games and, you know, not really being able to see the players full complexion <laughs> on the screen. It's a completely different game but you focus more on how the game is being played rather than you know what the players are wearing what they look like and things like that so it's a little bit more um it's nicer in some ways to to see and focus on the action of the game yeah and if any anyone listening goes back and watches the game listen to the sound the rim makes when the shot goes in because i noticed rims don't make that noise anymore in major college basketball games I don't know if it just had more give to it. It just made this strange noise um, every time it went in that you just don't hear anymore. Interesting. I didn't notice that. That's I have to go back and listen because 
I didn't notice that at the time. I did have my volume a little bit further down. Um, so not to disturb other people in my house with, you know, 17 year old basketball games, but, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Well, Hey, I appreciate you listening. Um, we always appreciate it and please reach out. Let us know how you remember the game or if this is the first time you've, you know, even heard any information about it. Cause maybe you were too young to watch then. And um, if we missed out any cool little interesting facts, uh, shoot us a message and let us know. Absolutely. Yeah. And we hope that uh, you remember the game as fondly as we do and stay tuned for our next feature next week. All right. Later, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone.